Welcome to Thyroid Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist, Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Stephen Sherman, and to find out how he's integrating the many recent research advances into his practice, I asked him to discuss several of his patients, and he began with a 49-year-old man. So this was a gentleman who came to me for recommendations about further management. He had recently been hired in an executive role in a company in Florida. He was going for his executive health physical. They did an ultrasound of his neck looking at his carotids, and they saw, in fact, that he had a mass in his thyroid gland that was biopsied and felt to be consistent with medullary thyroid cancer. So he went to surgery, and he underwent a fairly standard initial surgical procedure for the disease, which was a total surgical removal of the thyroid gland and bilateral central and lateral neck dissections. The pathology demonstrated you know, a four-centimeter medullary cancer with bilateral nodal metastases. Really quite remarkable to think of a four-centimeter neck mass as an incidental tumor, but in fact, this disease is often asymptomatic like that. So he came to us for evaluation because his tumor markers after surgery indicated that there was still disease present. And the question was, what further staging or assessment did he need? What was the role of evaluation for possible familial disease? And if additional disease was identified, what would be the treatment course? And can you talk a little bit about sort of the epidemiology of this disease and how this man sort of fit in? Also, the genetic syndromes and how you take that into consideration and working them up. So thyroid cancer in general is a fairly rapidly increasing disease. This year, estimated there'll be about 60,000 individuals in the U.S. diagnosed. That is increasing faster than the rate of diagnosis of any other form of cancer in the U.S. and a fairly common pattern around the world. And in general, most of those patients are being diagnosed with differentiated thyroid cancer. That's a tumor that derives from the follicular epithelium, the cells in the thyroid that make thyroid hormone and incorporate iodine. A small percentage, maybe 2 to 5%, will have medullary thyroid cancer, which is a neuroendocrine-derived tumor. And there are two basic clinical pictures for medullary thyroid cancer, about 20 or 25 percent have familial disease as part of a syndrome either of familial medullary thyroid cancer or multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2. The remaining 75 percent have a sporadic disease that is obviously not familial. Fortunately, with the current technology, about 99% of people who have familial disease, we can identify the germline mutation in a gene called RET, R-E-T, and this can be detected by blood testing. Interesting. What about tumor markers in this disease? So the one that's best known is calcitonin. It is a vestigial hormone that regulates calcium in other species and is an exquisitely sensitive, far too sensitive marker for this disease. But also CEA, carcinoembryonic antigen, is a very useful marker. And as we follow patients prospectively with metastatic disease, we follow both markers because we like to see them essentially march in parallel. There are occasional patients where the calcitonin does not go up, but the CEA does, 
or in fact the calcitonin may even decline. And that can represent a de-differentiating disease that's becoming more aggressive with time. We also know that we can follow these markers and get prognostic information from them. The time that it takes for the levels to double is closely correlated with the mortality of the disease. So a calcitonin doubling time greater than two years is associated with indolent disease, less than six months, very aggressive, higher mortality risk. It sounds kind of comparable to what you see, for example, with PSA and prostate cancer. Absolutely. And with calcitonin, because it's such a sensitive assay, we often will find patients who have low levels of residual calcitonin in their blood after primary treatment and can never localize their disease. And those individuals have a essentially normal lifespan. For this patient, unfortunately, his calcitonin and CEA levels are not that low, and they were in the several thousand, his calcitonin, and that clearly would be indicative of residual cancer. And at that kind of level, probably metastatic outside the neck. And just globally, in terms of managing patients, of course, there's the implication, as you say, in terms of family members, but are there any therapeutic implications of his having this positive RET mutation? Up until now, not really. The surgical approach is fairly similar, regardless of whether it's known to be familial, whether you can document the mutation or not. The prognosis is perhaps better for patients who have the familial forms of the disease, but that's probably because they're being identified earlier. So it's more of a bias of detection. However, the recent development of tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapies that target not only angiogenesis, but actually target the RET kinase itself, turns out to probably be more effective in patients whose tumors carry those mutations. So we're beginning to see that there are some therapeutic implications as well. So in this type of situation, how do you stage the patient, work the patient up with medullary carcinoma? So if a patient comes in with localized small volume disease in the thyroid, calcitonin levels that are relatively low, only a few hundred, the likelihood that they have disease outside the neck is quite low. And so the staging really would focus on looking for cervical adenopathy and extent of disease in the neck. But when you get to a calcitonin level of, say, 500 or higher, you begin to be able to detect distant metastatic disease. And so a more comprehensive staging workup, typically CT of the neck and chest with contrast, The liver is a key place for metastases, but they can be difficult to detect by routine CT procedures. And so a CAT scan with liver-specific infusion protocols or MRI to find these very small hypervascular lesions would be necessary. The other place it often goes to is the bone, and bone scans are notoriously insensitive for this disease. Right now, the standard would be MRI, of the axial skeleton, looking at the spine, the pelvis primarily, for these little hemangioma-like metastases. So what was your sort of global assessment of him at that point, and what did you do? So he clearly had residual disease on the basis of his markers. His CAT scan demonstrated some slightly enlarged, slightly suspicious mediastinal adenopathy, which would be common for this disease. But other than that, despite the height of his markers, 
We could not localize disease elsewhere. He had no pulmonary nodules, no hepatic or bone lesions, or other typical sites of metastasis. So a lot of the discussion with him, you know, was based on the idea that we now have established a new baseline. We don't have evidence that intervention at this time without imageable and progressive disease would be beneficial. And we now need to establish the pace of change for his disease. It's quite possible that he will remain stable, that his markers will minimally increase over the span of many years, and he may not require any further intervention. The other place that we would continue to focus carefully is the neck, because despite distant metastases, these patients can still get into trouble with neck recurrence. So we talked about a monitoring strategy to make sure that if he needed further surgical intervention, that we would you know, be able to deliver that. So kind of fast forwarding, if he were to develop more overt disease or overt disease, symptomatic disease, how do you think through systemic therapy when you decide that you want to use it nowadays with medullary cancer and sequencing of the available agents? Well, keeping in mind historically that up until literally a few years ago, we had no really effective chemotherapy. So this is very much an evolving thought process. But the focus remains first on the selection of patients based upon rate of progression of the disease. As you mentioned, symptoms can also play a role. The most common symptom from the disease is difficult to control diarrhea. And so we may have some very aggressive supportive regimens for that. But occasionally patients will move on to systemic therapy because of uncontrollable symptoms from the cancer. The current chemotherapy approaches, there are two approved agents for progressive metastatic medullary cancer. They're both agents that are anti-angiogenic because they target the VEGF receptor, but also target the RET kinase. And these are vandetinib and cabozantinib. Both of them have had successful international phase three trials that demonstrated improvement in progression-free survival compared with placebo. The studies are still ongoing for the long-term survival endpoint. At present time, with the data that's been available publicly, we still don't see any survival advantage with therapy. So the primary indication would be the patient who has progression where we feel that there could be clinical benefit from delaying further progression with therapy. And how do you decide which one to start with? That's a tough call. There's been no head-to-head comparison yet between the two agents that have both been improved in the last couple of years. As we look at the phase three trials for the two drugs, they had two very key differences in the design of the study, and that makes it difficult to compare head-to-head as well. Vandetnib, the eligibility criteria were patients who had measurable metastatic disease but it didn't necessarily require that they have evidence of progression in order to get into the study. So it had the potential of enrolling a large number of patients with relatively indolent disease. That, in fact, is what happened. And so in the placebo arm, the median progression-free survival was 19 months. So clearly, there were a lot of patients in this study who had relatively slow-growing cancer. It was prolonged, the median progression-free survival was prolonged to about 30 months in the arm that got vandetinib. So highly statistically significant, the hazard ratio clearly in favor of vandetinib treatment. 
The other aspect of the study was that it allowed unblinding of patients when they progressed. And if they were in the placebo arm, they could cross over to a salvage therapy with vandetinib. So that would provide more limitation on the ability to demonstrate a survival advantage. With capazantinib, that had a similar phase three trial design randomized against placebo, except patients were required to have demonstrated radiographic progression within about a year prior to entry. And that ended up clearly skewing and changing the population of patients in the study. So that the median progression-free survival in the placebo arm in the cabazantinib study was only four months. Very clearly, what was recruited was a group of patients with aggressive disease. It was improved to almost 11 months in the cabazantinib arm, highly statistically significant. So both drugs are proven to prolong progression-free survival, but in different populations. Now, the FDA, in their consideration of vandetinib, was obviously concerned by the possibility that this drug with toxicities might be used in patients with indolent disease, where it was arguable whether they needed or would benefit from treatment. So they actually limited the approval of the drug to patients with radiographic progression, even though that actually wasn't the design of the phase three study that supported the approval in the first place. So one could argue that with cabazantinib, there is more clear, strong, definitive evidence that it works in patients with progressive disease, whereas in the vandetinib trial, it was a subgroup analysis that supported its benefit. The toxicities of the drugs are also something that one would like to use to compare and perhaps help to select agent. Again, the problem was that in the cabazantinib study, it was a sicker population. And if you just look at the placebo arms and the adverse events in the placebo arms of the two studies, they were far higher in the cabazantinib trial. So again, it's really hard to do an ad hoc head-to-head comparison. I do think that there's stronger evidence for cabazantinib's benefit because the trial really focused on the group of patients who most need it. But either of them are effective agents, and we use them regularly. What about the specific side effects that you see with each of these? So there's the class effects, typical of antiangiogenic agents. So hypertension, diarrhea, certainly. Fatigue is a common problem. A variety of cutaneous problems, hand-foot syndrome. With vandetinib, There are some additional issues that are still black boxed and require a REMS program for management, and that is the potential for prolongation of the QT interval. And so patients need to be monitored very closely for their electrocardiogram and their electrolytes, their magnesium levels, et cetera, as they go into therapy. With cabazantinib, there isn't the QT concern, but you have the same generic side effects. I think we're becoming a little bit more attuned in this particular population of patients to some select problems. Hypocalcemia is a problem with both of these agents in thyroid cancer patients, and probably because many of these patients have had previous injury to the parathyroid glands due to their neck surgery. And so they may have diminished parathyroid function to begin with. We think these drugs 
perhaps alter vitamin D metabolism, and you take patients who are already a setup for hypocalcemia, you lower their vitamin D levels and their calcium absorption, and they get into trouble. Have you seen that yourself? Yes. We see this in maybe 10 to 20% of patients. And is it ever clinical? It certainly can be. We've had patients come in with symptomatic hypocalcemia, and so we pay very close attention to their vitamin D status as well as their calcium levels. When they're symptomatic, what do they actually complain of? Paresthesia, tingling and numbness in the fingertips around the lips would be mild symptoms. In its most severe form, tetany. And again, QT prolongation can really be a problem. So you take a patient on vandetinib and it puts them at much higher risk. When you see tetany, like where does it happen? It'll be carpal pedal spasm. And so there's a characteristic sort of drawing up of the hand. Sometimes it may show up when the patient's getting their blood pressure checked. A little bit of ischemia under the blood pressure cuff is enough to cause the tetany in a hypocalcemic patient. You mentioned hypertension. What about proteinuria? It's a mild problem with vandetinib. It can be a little bit more of an issue with cabazantinib. And so, you know, urinalysis is part of the routine monitoring approach as well. But the other area that we see with these drugs is the potential for fistula formation. And again, particularly because of where tumor may have grown in the neck or as a consequence of previous treatment with surgery or sometimes radiation, these patients are at some higher risk for tracheoesophageal fistulas. And that can be very difficult to manage. Is that, in your thinking, a manifestation of tumor response? We've seen patients with fistulas and perforations of structures that are from tumor response. We've had a recent case, for example, of a patient who had a colonic perforation while on one of these chemotherapeutic agents, not in clinical trial, but in routine practice. And at surgery, the resected colon specimen didn't show a diverticulum, which is the more typical story. It was actually a tumor metastasis on the wall of the bowel that had necrosed and led to perforation. So occasionally, it certainly can be. Certainly if there's radiation, that's a significant risk for this as well. Just out of curiosity, that patient you were talking about, did the patient also have other disease that was responding? Yes. Yeah. So this was an unexpected finding, you know, to see deposits of tumor on the bowel, suggesting a carcinomatosis but had bulk disease that was responding to treatment. And radiographically, you'll often see not necessarily tumor shrinkage, but tumor necrosis on the scans. What level of cross-resistance or cross-sensitivity is seen between these two agents? If a patient responds and then progresses, can you see patients then respond to the second agent? It's been remarkably effective going in any direction. There's not much evidence of cross-resistance. So the response rates tend to be almost as good in a patient who is, say, looking at second-line therapy as compared with first-line. And, you know, I've had patients with both medullary or differentiated cancer who we've gone from one drug to another to another, all in a relatively similar family, each time maybe slightly less degree of response, shorter duration, but you certainly can continue to treat with similar agents. I want to move on to papillary thyroid cancer, and maybe we can talk about your 77-year-old man. Sure. So this, of course, is the more common malignancy in papillary thyroid cancer, and these days that's about 90 to 95% of all cases. 
And again, for most patients who get papillary thyroid cancer, they live long enough to die from something else, primary treatment with surgery, and to a lesser degree now, radioactive iodine, for most patients, controls their disease. And even if not completely cured, they may be left with some biochemical evidence of disease, an abnormal tumor marker for thyroglobulin, but not requiring additional treatment. The 10 to 20% of patients with distant metastatic disease, about half of them can be cured with radioactive iodine. The other half, radioiodine, they're refractory to. And that's where the recent interest for systemic therapy has risen as well. Could I just ask, in terms of determining whether or not the patient is refractory to radioactive iodine, is that usually very straightforward or are there some nuances to making that determination? There are a variety of definitions that are now being used, and the clinical trials have come to a relative consensus as to how we would define that. So certainly the patient who has radiographic evidence of metastasis, clear nodules in the lungs, for example, that on a diagnostic radioactive iodine scan, you don't see any uptake. That's a patient who's not going to get clinical benefit from radioiodine therapy. We have patients who get radioactive iodine, get uptake in their metastases, yet those tumors continue to grow over the next 6 to 12 months. So despite radioiodine avidity, we would say they're refractory because they're progressing despite the treatment. Finally, there's evidence that patients who've received a cumulative radioiodine activity of at least 600 millicuries are unlikely to be cured by further therapy. And the adverse events, the toxicity of the treatment is cumulative. The higher amount you give, the greater the risks. And so 600 millicuries is becoming more or less a cutoff. Patient who's gotten that much, we would say is probably refractory for further therapy. So what happened with this man? So he had, you know, a real challenge. Certainly, older age of diagnosis is a significant risk factor for this particular disease. He presented with a neck mass that was suspected to be thyroid cancer at age 77. He went for an attempt at thyroidectomy and neck dissection. Unfortunately, the tumor was found to be encasing the carotid artery, the trachea, the esophagus, extending well down into the mediastinum, and it was clear that the surgeon was not going to be able to perform a complete gross resection. He had significant comorbidities as well, and the imaging studies that were done after surgery suggested that he probably not only had locally advanced disease, but some distant metastases with small pulmonary nodules. But his big problem, in fact, was advanced local regional disease. And he came to us for a second opinion. Our surgeons saw him as well and felt that this was really not readily resectable without huge morbidity. So we, in this situation, considered what would be the role for radiation treatment, which traditionally might be what people with gross residual unresectable tumor would receive, but the morbidity is considerable and the very little evidence for disease control with this extent. So we considered what the chemotherapy options would be. How often do you see this kind of presentation and is delay in accessing care kind of part of the syndrome or was it a part of the syndrome here? 
difficult to know. I mean, this is somebody who was followed pretty closely in his internist practice. I think that he had relatively rapidly growing disease, which is not unusual in a man in his 70s. But we didn't have a clear track record prior to his initial presentation, so I couldn't really be sure how fast it had or had not grown. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes these tumors, if asymptomatic, can often be you know, found incidentally, and quite surprisingly so. So how did you think through his therapy? So just as in the patient with medullary cancer, the usual things that we think about for systemic treatment are anti-angiogenic. And there's just been completed a phase three trial of serafinib, which was reported in phase two studies about five years ago as having a significant response and quickly moved into clinical practice while further trials were ongoing. The phase three trial confirmed what we had suspected, which was a significant improvement in progression-free survival. And serafinib and similar agents are now the first treatment that people like this might get. Could I just ask, you mentioned similar agents. What do we know about other TKIs and thyroid cancer, and do you ever utilize these? So in addition to serafinib, there are published phase two data with sunitinib, pazopinib, and axitinib. And vandetinib has had a randomized phase two trial that demonstrated improvement in progression-free survival. So, you know, we have a broad assortment. And just as with the patients with medullary, we can often roll from one treatment to another and get continued benefit for patients. The concern in this gentleman was the disease encasing the carotid. And by analogy to what's been seen with other tumor types, as well as some unfortunate limited experience with thyroid cancer, this would be a patient who would be considered to be at risk for a carotid leak and rupture. So what we did was we tested his tumor for a somatic BRAF mutation. About 40 to 50% of papillary cancers have a BRAF mutation. Most typically, it's the V600E mutation, which is identical to what you see in melanoma. And therefore, like in melanoma, in the presence of the mutation, we think that we have an option to use a BRAF inhibitor. We recently published data from a subgroup in the original phase one trial of vemurafenib. These were patients who, for the most part, had melanoma, but we had three patients with BRAF mutant papillary cancer in that. And, you know, one of three had a partial response. There's another BRAF inhibitor called dabrafenib that phase one study, there was also, I think, 12 patients with papillary thyroid cancer in there, and a third of them responded. And there's an ongoing phase two trial of vemurafenib in patients with BRAF mutant papillary cancer. We expect the results, you know, may get reported later this year. But we have had experience using it at our institution. And in this gentleman, because his tumor had the mutation, and we felt that there was a strong contraindication to anti-angiogenic TKIs. We sat down with him. We discussed clinical trial options or off-label therapy, and he chose to go with vemurafenib off-label. How did his insurance company respond to that idea? We've not had much difficulty, frankly. It's been surprising. That's interesting. And fortunate for him because he's had an excellent response. And within about three months, his tumor had reduced by about 40%. 
it's still not resectable, but he's had significant control and improvement of his local regional symptoms and continues on therapy with relatively minimal side effects. In terms of side effects, any issues with him in terms of photosensitivity? We hear a lot from the melanoma people, a lot of concerns about sunburn. What did you tell him? What about screening for squamous cancers? I assume these are seen also. Yeah, so the squamous cell cancers of the skin, in our experience, about a quarter of these patients develop them, so they do undergo routine cutaneous evaluation. In the clinical trials, there has been a greater sensitivity to this issue, and patients are being evaluated for squamous cell lesions, you know, in almost every orifice. The photosensitivity has not been a big problem for him. I don't see that much difficulty with it with this agent. It's a much bigger problem with vandetinib, the EGFR activity there. And we've seen patients with very significant burns, unfortunately, despite you know using heavy amounts of sunblock and covering up. It's still very significant. In melanoma, there's been some disappointment. There's really a lot of TKIs, actually, if you think about it, in that the responses are short-lived, or after a while, people relapse, often nine months, a year, et cetera. Same thing with thyroid, or too early to say? Too early to say, but you know, in our limited experience, that's very much going to be the case. So we'll wait and see as the clinical trials evolve. The drug, I would say, is not as effective in papillary cancer as it is in melanoma in terms of the frequency of that initial response. It probably is you know, in our limited experience, about a third partial response rate, much better than the data from colon cancer, not nearly as good as the data from melanoma. And there's some recent beautiful studies that were published from the labs up at Memorial Sloan Kettering explaining perhaps why it's not as good with this disease. There appears to be upregulation of another unexpected pathway when you use a BRAF inhibitor in thyroid cancer that causes an autoregulatory, autostimulatory loop that bypasses to some degree the BRAF inhibition. I'm kind of curious. I interviewed Marsha Bros also for this program. So we talked a lot about the big trial, but I'm curious about your own experience with serafinib, both in terms of efficacy, dosing, particularly, for example, here in an older patient, and side effects. So we've certainly used a lot of serafinib in our institution. We've been involved in that phase three trial. We've published our off-label experience at different times. And so I would say that the results as presented at ASCO were fairly representative of our experience, which is a response rate in our hands, probably 20% is typical. It's more the cessation of tumor growth that we tend to see. If patients respond, it's often a very slow and gradual process. Tumor shrinkage doesn't occur rapidly. There are other TKIs where the tumor shrinkage occurs much faster than serafinib. But it's been, you know, our go-to mainstay for several years as the first drug used because of the degree of experience that we have with it. The toxicities are problematic, and I have, especially with older patients, tended to start at a low dose and work my way up rather than start at the top dose and work my way down. But the spectrum of side effects that you've seen, is it typical for what's been seen in renal cell, for example, HCC? 
Yes. Again, hypocalcemia, a little bit more of an issue, but otherwise the side effects are fairly similar. And, you know, still diarrhea, hypertension, fatigue, cutaneous side effects, those are the most common things. 